Good morning and welcome to Central Church. We're so glad that you can be here. I'm so thankful for you and for the generosity that you have shown our church today. We're working through the, the Gospel of Mark. And the Bible reads this way. And the soldiers led him, Jesus, away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together a whole battalion, and they clothed him in purple cloak, and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, I've got to be honest, this is the part of the crucifixion story that is maybe the most troubling to me of, of so many things that are troubling in this whole story. The Roman soldiers. I get part, their involvement in the story. Roman soldiers were giving two tasks, beat Jesus, crucify Jesus, that's it. That's what was required. If they'd been around for any length of time before, they had gone through this routine hundreds of times, no doubt. Crucifixion was Rome's uh, uh, main mode of, of execution. It was a way to send a message to anybody around. You don't mess with Rome. If you mess with Rome, this is what you get. You get crucified. The soldiers knew their duties. They were to grab the, the, the condemned, beat them within an inch of their life. The more they beat them, the quicker they died. Beat them within an inch of their life and stick them up on a tree on the outskirts of town. That was their job. Beat Jesus, crucify Jesus. And there's a certain part of that, you understand, they, they were doing their duty, right? They were, they were soldiers in an enemy territory. They were told what to do. They were following orders. So there's a certain part of it you can say, okay, I, I understand why they were doing what they were doing. But here's the problem. These soldiers didn't just do the two required tasks, beat Jesus, crucify Jesus. In between, they also mocked Jesus. They spit on Jesus. They humiliated Jesus. That wasn't part of the job requirement. In a mock coronation, they put on him, uh, Mark says it was a purple cloak. Matthew says it was a scarlet cloak, a red cloak. I don't know, maybe I'm colorblind, so maybe it was purple. I couldn't have told the, you know, the color even if I was there. So maybe it was purpley red, I don't know. Purpose, the color of the robe isn't important. The purpose of the robe was simply to mock. And the soldiers needed a crown, and so they, they put together a crown of thorns and they jammed that crown of thorns on his head. And they mockingly said, Hail, King of, the, King of the Jews. It was all a big joke. They struck him on the head, and with each strike, those thorns, those, those thick thorns went deeper, deeper, deeper into his skull. They fell onto their knees, again, mocking Jesus. This wasn't part of the job description. This wasn't one of the required tasks, beat Jesus, crucify Jesus. No, they went farther. Putting on a crown of thorns on his head, it wasn't going to kill Jesus. You don't die from a crown of thorns on your head. It wasn't meant to kill him. It was meant to mock him. Spitting on Jesus, you're not going to kill someone when you spit on someone. No, it wasn't meant to kill him. It was meant to humiliate him, to demean him. It's disturbing. Because the Bible tells us it was a whole battalion, a whole company of soldiers, three to six hundred men, all participating in this mockery, this, this taunting and torture of Jesus. 
Now, of course, all 600 men didn't spit on Jesus. All 600 men didn't, didn't beat Jesus. But 600 men, three to 600 men were present, participating in the senseless treatment of Jesus. I, I don't imagine all 600 of them were bad guys. I don't think this is 600 raging maniacs. Probably some of them had families back home. They left back in Rome, their, 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 their moms and dads, maybe a wife and children. I imagine they were regular people. I, I, I bet if you would have met them on the street in Rome, maybe not in Jerusalem, in Rome, you would have thought they were a, a, a fine person, likable. And yet they tortured Jesus. What's going on here? Why'd they do it? And it isn't like this is, this is someone who has killed one of their own. Maybe if we thought that it was revenge, we'd get it. Okay, well, he killed one of theirs, and so they're taking it out on him. Jesus, what, what was Jesus' crime? He, he healed people. He fed thousands. Three people, at least three people were raised from the dead. He, he called the religious leaders hypocrites and snakes. I don't think the Roman soldiers cared about that. They probably thought they were hypocrites and snakes too. What was his crime? Why would they treat Jesus the way in the manner in which they did? That's, that's my big question. Why would 600 men, three to 600 men, participate in this humiliation of Jesus? Were they so completely different from you and me? that we simply can't understand how they would do such a thing to Jesus. I'm, I'm not so sure. Oh, we, oh, I, I don't think we wouldn't join in the abuse, would we? I don't think so. We're, we're more sophisticated than that in the 21st century, right? Do you remember three years ago, it was three years ago now, that some neo-Nazis showed up in Charlottesville, North, uh, Charlottesville Virginia. Do you remember that? They were there, and then there were protesters there, and they, were, they clashed. Of course, they were going to clash. And in the midst of that terrible, terrible, terrible day, a guy, one of the neo-Nazis, a guy by the name of James Fields, drove his vehicle into a crowd of protesters. Do you remember that? And a young lady, a lady named Heather Heyer, was killed. Terrible. My dad went to, my dad went to Germany to fight the Nazis. My dad was in World War II. And now a neo-Nazi drove his vehicle into a crowd and killed an innocent lady. And her family will never, ever be the same. I have a friend that pastors in the town. It's terrible, terrible. Listen, racism is sin. It always has been, always will be. It's been in, in the news again this week. Racism is sin. Racism is evil. To, to judge someone by the, the, the color of their, sin, their skin is absolutely wrong, incompatible with the gospel. But so this was happening. Now, now, if you know your Bible, and I'm guessing most of you do, you know Paul's words. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know that. And you might say, yeah, 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 I'm not going to argue with Paul. Of course, everybody has sinned. I understand that. But some sins, those neo-Nazis, those soldiers, some sins are worse than other sins. Someone not long ago sent me an email just asking me that very question. Pastor, are there some sins that are worse than other sins? Some sins more bad? Some sins that are really, really, really bad? It's a good question. Clearly, some sins are worse. I would much rather you cuss me out than shoot me dead. I would much rather you have an evil thought about me than an evil action toward me. I get that. Some sins are bad. I get it. And you might be a relatively good person. You know, you've never robbed a bank. You've never killed them. You've, you're not a neo-Nazi. 
And, and, and we can justify our actions by comparing ourselves. Well, we're not as bad as those guys. We're not like those Roman soldiers that, bit, that spit on Jesus and beat Jesus with a, with a stick and put a crown of thorns on us. We're not like those neo-Nazis. We would never drive our car into a, a crowd of people. We can, we can compare ourselves to those. But deep down, we know the truth, don't we? Paul's words, for all have sinned. Every, sing, every single one of us. Every single person who's joining us online. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, maybe no one else knows what you did, but you know it. You know what you did, you know when you did it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we can make comparisons, it's good to make comparisons, it makes us feel better. Well, I'm not like that guy, I'm not like that lady. We do it more today, I think, than ever. The demonization of whatever side you are not on is, is in full-blown force these days. You know, they are, those people are bad. They are really, really, I don't know how they could be a Christian and be, you know, fill in the blank. But Paul's point in Romans, which here's your commercial, next summer, next summer we're going to do the same thing that we've done this summer with our, our Mark Journal. Next summer it's going to be the book of Romans, the epistle of Romans. We're going to spend all summer in the book of Romans. I've never done, that's a long time to spend in one letter, but Romans is a great letter, deeply theological. This summer, Mark, next summer, Romans, so stay tuned. But Paul in Romans repeatedly says, we've, we've fallen short, and we're not compared. Our comparison is not to the worst person we've ever met. Our comparison is not to those guys on the other side. Our comparison is not to the neo-Nazis. Our comparison is not to the soldiers who, who spit on Jesus and beat Jesus. No. You know what our comparison is? Our comparison is to the righteous one. The holy one. Our comparison is, how do we compare to Jesus? Oh, Pastor, there's no way. I can't live up to that. I can't, I can't, I can't compare myself to Jesus. Exactly. That's the problem. You have just hit your head on the problem. <laughs> Isaiah, the prophet, wrote, All of us have become like one who is unclean in all our righteous acts. The best things we can do are like filthy rags. Earlier in Isaiah, he said this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each and every one of us has turned to our own way. For all have sinned, all of us, and that's the problem. We've all been self-centered. We've, 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 we've all been self-focused. We've all wanted our way instead of the other way. We've all gone astray, every single one of us, and that's the problem. I know, I got to get moving. Let me tackle the problem this way. Last week, Pastor Tyler preached a great sermon. If you weren't here, if you didn't join us online, go back and listen to it because it was a great sermon. And, he, and he, in that sermon, he said how many words Jesus said, how many words were in the book of Mark that Jesus is quoted out of, and it's a lot of words. But then after his arrest and during his arrest and de uh, crucifixion and resurrection, how very few words Mark is quoting Jesus is having. It's mostly, Jesus is mostly silent after his arrest. And his words are very, very few. 
Which makes it then very interesting, the, the words that Mark chooses to put down of Jesus in this part of the story. Does that make sense? If, if Jesus doesn't say much, what Mark does include, we ought to listen up for and say, oh, wow, that's, that's important. Mark thought that was so important, he doesn't include hardly anything that Jesus says after his arrest. But he does say this, so I better listen up. That's the point. Well, as you know, Jesus said seven things from the cross. I've preached on those seven words, you know, Easter time, Lent season, all the time. But Mark only has one quote from Jesus from the cross, just one. In fact, it's the very last thing that Jesus is quoted as saying in the entire gospel. So it should make our ears perk up and say, okay, I better listen to what Mark thinks is the most important thing that Jesus said on the cross. Now again, I've preached on those seven words plenty of times. I love, I love preaching on heaven. And so, so, you know, when Jesus looked at that thief on the other side of him and said, today you're going to be with me in paradise, I love it. I love that passage. And I, and I love the, the fact that, that Jesus cared for his mother. And so he, during that, John has, has Jesus saying, saying to, to John, you know, behold your mother. I love that. You know, he's taking care of his family. I love it, love it, love it. And I love how Jesus on the cross looked out at that vast number of people who were, who were hurling insults and how terrible uh, Jesus was. And he looked out at them and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I love that. I love preaching on that passage. I even love when, when we focus on the humanity of Jesus up on the cross and he says that simple, simple words from the, from the cross, I thirst, I'm thirsty, love it. I love how Jesus puts his full trust in, in God Almighty alone even in the closing moments of his life and he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I love that. And I love, I love, I love the, the mission accomplishment with the simple phrase, the last words, it is finished. All of those would have been great in Mark's gospel. Would have loved it if Mark would have included those words, but that's not what he included. The one passage, the only words, in fact, the final words of Jesus in the gospel of Mark are from the cross. And Mark not only quotes Jesus, he quotes him in Aramaic. I mean, this is a direct, direct quote you can't get any more direct than what mark says in these final words and he has jesus saying this eloi eloi lemesek bantani which means my god my god why have you forsaken me the last thing he has jesus saying remember mark 1 verse 1 chapter 1 this is the story of the christ jesus christ the son of god and now in, in the last words, the final quote from Jesus in this book, the Son of God hanging on a cross looks out and says, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Some versions say, why have you abandoned me? Abandonment, that's what happens to children when their parents walk away. I have a friend whose, whose mom dropped him off on a on the doorstep, him and his brother. He was 10 and his brother was six or something like that and just left him. Took him years to get over that. Some might say it's still not over that. Abandonment, that's what happens to old clunkers on the side of the road. Drive through the city of Flint, you'll find abandoned houses. People have walked away. You could use the, 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 the word discarded. Why have you discarded me? 
Why have you treated me like a, like a used-up napkin? I tried to clean up this mess, and then you tossed me aside. Why have you discarded me? Forsaken. Forsaken is what happens to the worst of the worst criminals. We put them in, in prison for life, and they are forgotten. They are forsaken. They are done. And Jesus, the Son of God, the last words Mark has him saying in the entire gospel, why, God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Some say it was simply to, to quote Scripture, and Jesus was quoting Scripture, Psalm 22, in that passage. But I think there's more to that, much more than that. Earlier, I quoted Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But there's more to that passage than that. Isaiah 53 reads this way, Surely... He, Jesus, took up our pain. He bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And, on the, and the Lord has laid on him. On him. The iniquity of us all. On Jesus was all our pain and all our suffering and all our trouble and all the abuse we've endured on Jesus was all our worry, all our anguish, all our doubts. On Jesus was all our sin, all our terrible, terrible sin. All of our sin was laid on him. The sins of the world, the sins of those guys who mocked him. And, and, and spit on him. The sins of those neo-Nazis who think that they are so right. The sins of all of us. In other words, on Jesus was the worst moment of your life multiplied by whatever. So when you say, no one knows what I've gone through, Jesus does know and maybe you are experiencing some deep, horrible, awful guilt and sin even now. Maybe only you and God know what you did. And maybe you're thinking because of what you did, God will never, ever have anything to do with you ever again. And maybe this morning you are here or you're at home and you are so lost and so... Jesus, the one who said... Why? Why have you abandoned me? Jesus knows where you're at. And maybe you've raised up a huge why, God, why yourself. Why am I going through this? Why am I dealing with this tragedy? We're all asking, why are we in the middle of this pandemic? Why? Jesus, Jesus knows. And if you're feeling absolutely devastated by the stuff of life, hear me, Jesus has been there. Not only has Jesus been there, not only does Jesus know what it's like to be alone and utterly, 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 completely lost and utterly abandoned. 
while he was hanging on the cross, Jesus knows the weight, the terrible weight of our guilt and our shame. Listen, we say all the time, salvation is free, right? You just accept Jesus, follow Jesus, it's a free gift. He wants off, and it is free. But don't take that to mean that it wasn't costly. It's extremely costly. Jesus went through the pain, the humiliation, the sorrow, the shame, the guilt, bearing the weight of all our sins. There was a cost to our salvation. Jesus paid the cost. Jesus knows the, sinful, the devastation of sinful choices. Jesus knows what you go through, and he still paid the price. He took all of those sins upon himself. I think that's Mark's point. I think that's what it all boils down to, this gospel story that he's been, been proclaiming through these now 15 chapters. That's his point, when it boils down, when you are utterly, completely, finally lost. When you think that all is lost, when you are feeling abandoned, when the weight of the world is on your shoulder, when the guilt and the shame of what you did or how you did it or the words you said or the actions you took is weighing down on you, when you feel at your end, Jesus Christ is there. That's Mark's point. The only thing Mark records, Jesus is saying from the cross, why God, why have you forsaken me? That's his point. Do you remember way back in Mark 10? In Mark 10, when we were looking at that passage, I said that the key verse in the entire gospel was in Mark 10. And I told you to put a big star by it, Mark 10, 45. Put a big star by it, underline it, whatever you had to do in your Mark journal. And I wanted you to remember it, so we came up with a little ditty where you're snapping your fingers. Do you remember that? And I had you snap. It's like the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Son of man came, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom. Do you remember that sermon? That's the point. That's where we're at. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The only one who ever has been on earth that didn't deserve to be, to, that did deserve to be served, but he didn't, he was a servant, and so much of a servant that he went to a cross, he was hanging on a cross, and the only thing, the most important thing that Mark says he said, is he looked out and he said, why God, why? Why would he say such a thing? Because your sins, my sins, those neo-Nazi sins, those soldier sins were all heaped on him. And he knows that the loss why did Jesus come? To pay a ransom for many. To pay that debt that we could not pay. The wages of sin is death, Paul said. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus Christ came to earth not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice Paul, Mark didn't say give his life as a ransom for all. Give his life as a ransom for many God loves everybody. But you have to choose for yourself, are you going to follow this one? Are you going to invite this one to be a part of your life and a part of your journey? See, 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 we have to decide if we want to accept his love and forgiveness and mercy and fellowship. It's up to you. It's your choice. I can present the facts. I'm a preacher of the gospel. That's my job. 
right? I present the facts. We are all sinners. We are all need a Savior. We, we can carry around the weight of the world on our shoulders for our entire life, or we can give it all over to Jesus, but it's up to us. I can present the facts. I can tell you how, how life with Jesus is so wonderful and how Jesus has made a place for us, a wonderful place. It's called heaven. And when we accept him, we can know that that will be our eternal destination. We can have eternal life with him forever and ever and ever. Or we can carry the weight of the, sho- of the world on our own shoulders. See, I can present the facts. But it's up to you. Decide what are you going to do with this one who came to this world not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark shows us, Mark shows us, even in this story, that that, that, that was, that's, that's the outcome. It's up to us. In, in 15, he tells some of the remarkable events that take place in Jesus' death. In, in verse 34, he talks about the, how, the, how, how darkness came over the land. And then in verse, verse 38, he tells how the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's significant. And that this, this barrier... It was a, just a, a huge symbol, this barrier between God and us in the temple, this barrier between God and us, that temple curtain was ripped, not from bottom to the top, but from top to bottom. God did it. God himself did it. God ripped the curtain so that we might enter. Very symbolic. And then he says this. One of the most powerful moments, I think, in the gospel is verse 39. Because there, a centurion, one who had been in that battalion, one who had been around when they were mocking and spitting. For all we know, he was the guy that, 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 that fashioned the crown of thorns and jammed him on Jesus' head, the centurion. He was there on Golgotha, and he saw he could draw only one conclusion when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. What about you? What conclusions are you drawing about Jesus? You here in the sanctuary, you at home. Maybe, maybe you're at home acting like you're not paying attention to the sermon, but you are, you're listening. And maybe, maybe you've been around church your whole life and you know this story, you know the story of the crucifixion, you know it better than me, you know it. But have you, what have you done with Jesus? Have you ever invited him into your life? Have you ever really decided to follow him? Not because of your parents or grandparents, but you, you, you. Have you decided to follow Jesus with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? At the beginning of the sermon, I told you about how in such a wonderful way God provided so that we could, with, I mean, this loaves and fishes type of story, how we were able to eliminate $10 million worth of debt. In not one county, not just Genesee County, but all those counties, eight counties. Thank you, Lord, for making salvation possible. Thank you, Lord, for making eternal life possible. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to know that we can spend forever and ever with you in all the saints and glory. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.